So the idea was we take a, an old classic film, shrink it down to 30 minutes, you know, change the cool. genre of it with like replacing people's mouths, re-editing it to change the context, inject new characters and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it was just this, you know, proof of concept that we made with uh, The Shining from uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Sure. So we pitched them this thing called The Chickening. So even though this didn't work out, it got shown in film festivals and the people at Widen and Kennedy saw it in Portland, probably at a film festival, and they hired me to start working on KFC stuff because they saw the chickening. Mm, so, so it was this weird link from chicken to chicken. Yeah. So they had all these existing Old Spice ads. So I added hats and multiplied the birds and made uh, deodorant come out of this whale's blowhole. This is from like three different spots and they're all mixed together <laughs> and cut up and made insane. So I found applications for the same techniques in advertising and films and all kinds of other things, even if I couldn't acquire the IP myself. Founded in 2017, Startwell is Toronto's independent hub for innovators to collaborate. Our podcasts relate perspectives from the world's most diverse urban population to reflect unique insights into global business, media, and culture. Nick, thanks for joining me in the studio. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. Um, so, it's very rare that we find time to actually use our studio space, which we're sat in today, you know, the Startwell Event Studio or, or Cyclorama, to actually talk to creators. But it's something that I love doing because that's what this place is, is for. And we do creations and we're producing stuff in studio all the time. But yeah, flipping the script and actually talking to people about creating stuff and the mindset that that requires, <laughs> uh, the lack of mindset that that requires. Uh, the, you know, and, and, and all that crap, uh, the, the difficulty, but also the joy of kind of like pursuing a path in, in kind of like creative media, uh, is, is really fascinating to me and, uh, some of our audience. So yeah, it's so awesome to have you here to be able to pull back, uh, peel back the onion a little <laughs> bit on it. Hopefully it's good for me to get out of my work zombie mode too. For me, like, I guess the creative, uh, process is kind of mostly in isolation because I'm these years I'm doing a lot of post-production work and computer stuff and less studio time so it's kind of good to get out of my got you out of the house zone um (laughs) let's talk okay I'd love to start with the the kind of like beginnings of your career yeah uh when you were a kid of whatever age you want to respond as (laughs) uh way back here yeah like what I mean I don't see it. Now I'm a father. I'm a father. My daughter's like five. And I don't, I see a lot of parents that we know uh, kind of like doing this whole, do you want to be a fireman? Do you want to be a policeman bullshit to their kids? And like, it just limits, I would think, their sense of what options are in life. Yeah. And having said that. I feel like I'm kind of like, I have a lot of teenage or almost teenage nieces and nephews and stuff. Especially for my nephews, I feel like I'm kind of a bad example because I kind of made a career out of making, you know, dick and butt jokes and stupid (laughs) animations that are like kind of juvenile and ridiculous, but it worked out for me somehow. So it's probably like leads kids the wrong way, maybe, Mm -hmm. but 
<laughs> but is that where it started? It's like not you were all just, dick and butt jokes. Were you just like a joker when you were a kid? And you yeah, just like to have I fun? was. I was taking my dad's photocopier, and my dad was a butcher, so I was taking like wow. his butcher magazines and photocopying pictures of pigs and cutting their heads out and putting it on people's bodies and stupid like ridiculous collages and stuff. Yeah, that yeah. was always just you know for fun, making jokes and and images to make my buddies laugh in school. And I, I remember I took like. In high school, I found this box of like discarded yearbook photos. Like it was like everyone in my high school, but like all five poses, you know, looking right. at the camera. And I was, I stole it from my high school because I thought it was so funny to start cutting up the faces, making these kind of caricatures out of people, you know, take the one uh, face of them looking that way and the other one and put them together. And I made all these like Frankenstein <laughs> monsters out of people. And I, I guess that seems like serial killer vibes or something, but it was all, you know. Your dad was a butcher. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I'm and starting wait, to paint a dark just, picture here. Right? So he was a butcher, and he had butcher magazines. Yeah, exist. Like butcher you Weekly. It's your industry, right? Right. Yeah. The Tenderloin <laughs> Tuesday discussion. But yeah, so I was always kind of messing with imagery and remixing stuff. Like I would buy buy five of the same magazine so that I could get the same imagery, mm -hmm. and then like cuts cut out the necks to make someone have a super long neck and do these distorted people. So I started out in kind of photo collage and then Photoshop, you know, was coming around and turned into a more digital workflow and I just kind of went full blast into that over the years. But it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't it wasn't like right out of school like I yeah. became an artist and started making money this way. Like I went to I went to OCAD here in Toronto for like a year and a bit and then I was kind of like failing to see the, you know, Validity. viability of a career. Out of uh, you know fine art, so I was that I, a failure of the school. Do you think it was a weird time because I was taking integrated media in like 1999, and that was a time when mm. computers were like bare, like just on the scene in the real world, but in yeah. universities, like they're kind of lagging technology and mm -hmm. still are in a lot of ways sometimes. You know, sure. So they, they were still teaching us VHS at the turn of the oh, century, wow. which you were was cutting tapes. You had to cut tapes for the first two or three years before you're allowed on the Media 100 suites, which are now ob <laughs> long obsolete. But I already, at that time, I had my dad's old computer because, you know, he was kind of keeping up with the 386 to Pentium yeah, range. Yeah, yeah. I was always getting his hand-me-down, so I was always messing around with stuff. And at that time, even, you could edit video, you know, 640 by 480, like barely on a Pentium whatever. Totally, yeah. It was slow, but you could do it. Yeah. So I was just like, why are we even learning this? And, you know, it seemed kind of dumb. And I needed to make money because, you know, on my own living in Toronto. Right, right. So I bailed and started at, like, house painting with my buddies. It turned into a construction company. That turned into a 10-year-long career of doing renovations and wow. structural remediation on big factory buildings. And Here in I, Toronto. Yeah, and then I became a property manager. I was doing all that, but I was on the side. I kept making my artwork, and I kept making music videos for my buddy's bands, and I was managing my buddy's band, and, and we had this old school bus. We'd be touring around Canada on the weekends and stuff. With so, bands, you mean? Not yeah, just so, a bunch of collage artists. Uh, no, just with bands, <laughs> music bands. So I was Who kind of... Who remix any of your magazines? Bring yeah. us your magazines. We got this. We got this. <laughs> but yeah, so that was kind of like, you know, I always had my foot in that door. And then YouTube came around, started making a bunch of like video oh. remixes with my buddies for, as for fun, you know, yeah. like green screening ourselves into infomercials and stupid like, you know, After Effects stuff. And then eventually people started seeing my work on YouTube and, and hiring me to do like little advertising jobs and stuff like that. And that snowballed That's into agencies or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first job ever actually like paid gig was uh, Ken Block, who actually rest in peace, recently deceased in a horrible okay. accident. But he was the 
um, uh, founder of DC Shoes, and he's oh. a crazy stunt car driver, like rally car driver. Like the guy was amazing, and he did these uh, vi- viral videos called Jim Connor, where he'd race his car through buildings and like dri- like skid sideways through amazing. warehouses and spin his car and all that stuff. So he approached me after he saw some of my YouTube work and was like. I want to pay you just to do like a low key remix of Jim Connor with visual effects and Whoa. just but but he wanted to like you know give me a few grand and just pretend I did it on my own like you know like it was my own intention and then so I was like I went crazy with it I teamed up with my pal Davey Force and we like added pterodactyls attacking his car and all this crazy stuff and I look back now and I mean it was kind of crude animation compared to what I do now but yeah. at the, it's funny and you know YouTube what you even know. tools were you using at that time and this is what year again or uh, this that would have been 2009 oh, it was a little later okay. yeah I'm talking like after the 10 years of construction so this is still, a little it's later. still a while ago though that's, I oh, mean, yeah. that's where Facebook kind of came on the scene yeah right? it's only a few years into YouTube even wow. you know that was 05 06 yeah um, so yeah, so then I made this crazy video for him and he was like, oh my God, showed it to the team at DC Shoes and they was, he's like, we want to make this an official spot for the DC, DC Shoes, wow. uh, Shoes YouTube channel. So that was kind of my first advertising gig. Then he, he sent us a bunch of product. I started shooting like shoes spinning on green screen and we incorporated the product into the video and turned it into a whole thing. So that kind of launched a career into advertising. So and I uh, quit the construction and never looked back. <laughs> wow. And it came to you. I mean, you were yeah. doing stuff, but it came to you. The business side of it came to you. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is, like, I never sought out to make a career of this. You know, like it was. I was just making stuff for fun. Yeah. On YouTube, dicking around, and and I still do that. Anytime I have time in between jobs, I learn new software, kind of you know, grab new tools, and do what I want to do, and throw that out in the world. And I found it always leads to more work and opens new doors so I kind of that's my default go-to when I'm sick of what I'm doing or if I'm like pigeonholed into doing a certain kind of work I just kind of break out take six months <laughs> or like, three I months hate this client I'm gonna do the work but I hate the client not not the client so much but like you I, I find a lot of artists like you learn your tools and you're really good at After Effects mm-hmm. or a certain 3D thing and, and people have very narrow styles a lot of the time yeah. and you just kind of make the same thing over and over again. And you, I don't know. So let's talk about tools. We'll come back to the business side of things and agency world, because we were having that pre-camera chat, which I think is interesting. Well, some of that stuff will come back. But the how, at what point do you get frustrated with a tool uh, versus sticking with something that might be more basic that you have always relied on, but you feel free with? There's a bunch of different scenarios that can lead to that. I think like tools like After Effects software in particular, mm-hmm. that software is not moving as fast as the rest of the world and industry sort of. Like a, a lot of artists complain about just like you've got now uh, t- programs like Touch Designer, Resolume, uh, compositing Resolume software. Resolume still around? Yeah. I used to VJ with that. I it's traveled great. the world VJ. <laughs> yeah. It's still around. It's still wow. great. But you can plug in like you know, uh, EXR passes from your renders and, and into this software that can composite in real time now. Wow. And then you load it into After Effects and it's like, you know, it's loading into VRAM and it's yeah. just like, it's kind of crazy that that entire software is not on the GPU. And like, so, so things like that make me frustrated with certain tools and make me want to move into something else sometimes. But yeah. I, I think for me, the big, big jump, kind of uh, still 10 years ago now that I made it, but 
moving just from doing 2D animation, video-based stuff into 3D world. And now I'm like full blast into Cinema 4D, Houdini, Octane Render, uh, you know, Reillusion for character creation, started dabbling in Unreal. Like there's just such a vast world of stuff that's mm -hmm. moving so fast that it's uh, fascinating to me. So it's I kind of- fascinating, but isn't it terrifying? Yeah. In terms yeah. of like- You can't learn it all. That's the hard part. It's just you like you want to try all these tools and do all these things and you see people doing amazing thing here, you want to run right. and split yourself into 10 people and try and learn it all, but it's really not possible. You kind of, I mean, you don't have to specialize to the point where like you're just the guy who does mustaches in Hollywood. Like you hear about these guys that are so specialized in like ridiculous, you know, just hand animation or something like yeah. that. But I think you can be a generalist and learn, a, like I do, I learn, I learn all these different things, but I sometimes feel like I'm spreading myself a little thin too, and I don't go in deep enough into the things mm -hmm. that I'm learning, so. Well, especially as like photorealism with these rendering engines becomes something that is advancing. Like I, you mentioned Unreal, didn't they just this week or last week? release a whole new like yeah it's wild like the the meta human stuff and the mm -hmm. the facial mocap things like i, I have a mocap suit and i and it's been a but huge you can use your iphone with their new thing right yeah yeah so even with the reillusion of the software i use you can use the iphone for a you know facial mocap and it's pretty decent like i mean it's not avatar level but it's yeah. like you can do it at home now and it looks really good they have wrinkle maps even that when they squint it like shows it reveals wrinkles and Amazing. like yeah it's really getting high fidelity so as the as that kind of the means of articulating for visual artists become uh, more in line with what your expectations of the creative output would be, that frustration I've always felt that I'm, my mediums have always for the most part a little bit film but always music like mm -hmm. I DJed and music produced and stuff and and I always get frustrated where I could like I could hear something but it took me like a month to produce it. Yeah. And then I'm like, it's not worth it. I'll just hear it for me. No I'm one not, else needs to know this. You know? I always like, I have a friend who's an amazing guitar player and I, I suck at guitar. I just never put in the hours, but I always like to fiddle around and play. And yeah. I and I can record myself and edit the hell out of it so I sound all right, but I'm not, you know, just as far as playing, I'm no virtuoso. And I complained to him one time that I like, I can't play my ideas. I'm not good enough to play my ideas and his response was like well that's a lot better than knowing how to play everything in the world and not having any original ideas because sometimes when you know how to play every single genre of everything you go to play something new and you're just you're stepping on all the things you already right. know like it's hard to find a new creative path so i think it's kind of awesome to have an ignorant yeah <laughs> uh, like angle sometimes to not know what you're doing and you come up with something brilliant sometimes because you're just coming at it from an honest place of no knowledge and, totally. and having these tools where you can jump in and do something that you used to have to have like five years of Houdini knowledge to do a certain kind of simulation and now it's like there's software that can do it in one step and like all these AI tools now are going to lower the bar even more so it's right. I think it's going to come down more to your ideas than the so uh, enabling people to like actually create without being tripped up by the infrastructure sure but also I think we're getting to a point where there's also going to be a massive amount of like sort of half-assed content because a lot of these AI tools are shortcuts, but you still need all the skills to take it over the finish line. To get, you get it to 80%, but to get that last 20 yeah. is like I saw a tool the other day that's like they're marketing as like you just have to shoot a film of you and then you can replace it with a 3D character and it'll automatically erase the background and put the 3D character in and light it and all these things. 
And it's like, it kind of seems like, like it's the, an app on your iOS device. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's going to be okay and it'll do those things. But as soon as you shoot it like a little bit where your hand goes out of the screen, it's going to be wonky or like, you know, there's going to be all these things where how do you fix that? You still need the skills to fix that. And that's like, you kind of still need to know how to do the entire workflow. Granted, to use the shortcuts. Unita comes down to two things, isn't it? There's this personal satisfaction thing of like doing a good job, but then there's also this idea of kind of professional content. So mm -hmm. I think it comes down to what we were talking about before, which is like a little bit about audience, who your audience is as a creator. And if your audience is like a five second blip while they're, you know, on the toilet and they're just, they, they see it and it's gone. And the impression isn't really like, I mean, the impression on them isn't really impactful or designed to be impactful, then you're a different that's a different type of medium than if you're creating sure. something that's like engaging and on a cinema screen. Yeah, yeah. And most content is now viewed on this tiny little yeah. screen anyway. So it's kind of this, you can get away with a lot of like, you know, not half-assed work, but work that doesn't, you know, need that inspection level of like pixel perfect animation. And it's not necessarily even about the audience. It's also about kind of the monetization monetization <laughs> of it like okay we'll jump around a little bit because mm -hmm. i want to look at some of your work i want to show it to yeah. our audience but if you're cool with jumping into it if you have a clip for me mm -hmm. uh you've done some nft stuff right yeah i kind of dove it was kind of weird because in you know when i dropped at art school in like 2000 i was kind of like eh what like art was seemed like this ridiculous thing i'm like trying to sell my collages to my friends and family like to like break in or start something it just seemed kind of ridiculous and now back then too it's like digital artists were trying to make dvds and sell them for a thousand bucks and it was laughable like yeah. you're gonna buy this plastic jewel case and like charge someone money to see a dvd when it's a copyable thing you know like it seemed absurd so but it was also kind of at that time 20 whatever years ago it seemed like digital art needs to be um, you know, a mainstay of, of the fine art world. And it never did. It never really took hold yeah. in galleries around the world. And only now it feels like it's starting to gain a foothold. Like, it right. feels like it's 20 years too late. But it's it's kind of happening. So I was kind of excited by it. But at the same time, it like the NFT crypto world and all the scams and all the cringe of all the crappy animal PFP projects and yeah. everything like that was just made it by the end of last year really hard to uh, kind of call yourself an NFT artist, or for me anyway, I was just kind of like- Wondered uh, about that. I was like, cause you could upload anything and assume that <clears throat> if someone connects with it for whatever, you know, authentic or other uh, collector, you know, mentality, they'll buy it, they'll try and trade it. It has value, but it doesn't necessarily have value for its own merit. Yeah. And, and so it, then there's a commodification of the art. Which is, I think, a completely separate thing from actual fine art, digital, yeah. a way to at least create a digital, uh, you know, one of one piece that people can buy or, or a receipt for some uh, uh, real life item that someone can buy. Like yeah. I always, with all of my art pieces that I ever sold, they came with a print. So I make prints on my own printer in my studio and I send those to the first buyer. It's up to them if they want to give it to the next one, which nobody does. But I printed uh, you know, a one of one print, didn't even make one for myself. Like that's the only print in existence, goes to the buyer and a digital 
uh, engraved key with uh, a USB key with a higher resolution file than everyone else sees on the internet. Okay. So at least you get the highest resolution possible. You're the, you and me are the only ones that have it, and you get this print. So I thought at least that makes it more of a traditional mm. purchase. And so I did that for myself anyway, because if I was buying art, that's what I would want, something like that, you know, rather than just a link to an image that everyone else has access right. to. I don't know. It made it special. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can play some of the, uh, this is kind of a mix. We can end it anytime, but sure. this is a mix of stuff I did in the last couple of years, animation loops. So some of these I saw cut as NFTs. Yeah, this one was. It was a uh, office piece I did, and it was kind of in the middle of the, uh, you know, pandemic, the the absurdity of the office, no one was going anymore. This is every day at WeWork. Yeah. That's what this looks like. <laughs> and uh, this is a, one's called American Exceptionalism. It's just a kind of Walmart lady with the guns and the toilet paper. Again, another pandemic thing with yeah. the toilet paper, I imagine. <laughs> so yeah, these are all kind of born out of the pandemic. And uh, these are characters in mocap that I had done in my suit. <laughs> And this, I was kind of wait, 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 rewind. So this is these are characters you did in a suit. You uh, captured, the, yeah, the lady. I think I did that walk cycle for her in my in my mocap suit. Oh, and then I did I did another layer of animation. Like I locked the hands to the um, card kind of and moment. then lowered and raised the hips to make it more exaggerated. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, I do a lot of the uh, mocap myself. I have a, a large library of existing mocap as well, so I kind of use a combination of. So you have movement two. captured from actual humans yeah. moving. And now I'm doing facial motion capture as well, like we were saying with the iPhone. Wow. The, so that's this can... one's obviously not mocap, it's a Houdini simulation. <laughs> that wouldn't have, would have been a hard one to motion capture. Oh, yeah, how do you fly <laughs> out on your hand alone? <laughs> Phenomenal work, though. Oh, thanks. And of course, this is all the stuff you're showing me is all non-commercial, like not for yeah, this a client. Was just, I, I kind of took some time off of the commercial work and just dove into this uh, digital art market thing for a while. And yeah, these are have all sold to people. I mean, the, the market has since somewhat collapsed yeah. uh, since the boom of the NFT explosion, but. I like this one. I saw this one. <laughs> Buttcoin is what it says, right? Oh, and this one I did with Eric Andre, the comedian. I've been doing a lot of uh, collabos with different celebrities, you know, comedians, musicians, and stuff like that. So this was, uh, he approached me to do uh, an NFT project. So I just made a subway full of uh, him, different versions of him. And is this an infinity loop? Yeah. So yeah. if you watch it over and over again, keeps, it just keeps, keeps going. going back through. And that was kind of interesting. That was like the first kind of cracks I saw of like NFT backlash, because his a lot of his audience was really, not in NFTs mm. and not into, you know, and also at that time, Ethereum was proof of work and it was like a really, you know, huge environmental, you know, what is this doing? Why do we have millions right. and billions of GPUs running hot to, you know, solve this problem to make this coin where people can buy JPEGs? It was like the absurdity of it. It was absurd. It was crazy, you know, like I think had Ethereum stayed that way, it was just like, I don't know. It, I don't think it would have stayed afloat. I don't know. It seems kind of insane. I can't put my head, I can't wrap my head around crypto yeah. regardless. Like I, I understand this like digital currency need, but the whole ecosystem around it and the like hedging industry uh, yeah. is just beyond my conception. It's, uh, it's 
I can't pretend that I fully understand it either. But for me, it's just like the fine art world, I feel like digital art needs some kind of way to have a bulletproof receipt that you're the owner of it. I, right. I think that concept is sound. I think it's a cool thing to own something like this. Like just, you can play it on a screen, you can experience it in real life and to, why not be able to own it? I think it's, you know, inevitably, um, in the year 2350, like it's not just going to be watercolors and clay sculptures and galleries. Like digital art is kind of going to be on the cutting edge of all kinds of fronts, you know, experiential well, and yeah, and especially with this question of like remix culture. Like I, I've, I'm big on this idea coming from the music background that I have as a DJ. I've always been thinking about everything as uh, you know a sample. Yeah, all these things are a combination of um, uh, art that are like 3D models I've purchased and, you know, put legs from one model onto a duck from another one. This donut I bought, an inverted on like everything is remixed, you know, they, these asteroids and, and everything is, you know, those didn't come <laughs> on that lady. I put those squash on there, zucchinis. <laughs> So yeah, I, and I've always, because I started in video remix, so I was pulling infomercials off of my like uh, video VHS. capture card that oh, was okay, like, yeah. you know, pulling the TV signal into my computer back in the early 2000s and remixing commercials that I got off the airwaves with assets and stock images and party or tracking a party hat onto some lady and just really crude, stupid remix animation. But I still, I still treat my new productions like that. Everything is still grabbing from stock assets and sound effects libraries and, and putting it and reorganizing it into something new, you know? How do you think the audience for your work has changed or evolved? Um, you know, as since I guess it's been how long since you've been putting stuff? Let's just say on YouTube alone. Yeah, I guess almost 20 years, like since 05 or something like that. Are there that, people so. that you know that have been watching your stuff? It's funny because like some people still like make comment references to my early videos. And now it's like I'm in a completely different world of 3D stuff compared to the 2D kind of remixy stuff I was doing earlier. So once in a while somebody will do a nod to one of my old videos and I'm like, wow, this person has been checking it out for decades. <laughs> Isn't that, and how does that feel to you to have a body of work that's kind of publicly available? Because talking about this whole conventional art world where, you know, things get dispersed, you create art, maybe you die and then it gets dispersed and it doesn't matter to you. Sure. But otherwise you sell your pieces off, you move on to the next piece, you keep mm -hmm. working. With digital, it's kind of interesting because you can it's have this like- Just up there for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can kind of dive back in time a little bit here. If uh, So I was also like a bit creator on Conan for years. So that was also in the early years of my YouTube, I got this call one day. Back from, when Conan was on television. Yeah, yeah. Back when he had a television show. And uh, so I just got this call out of the blue and it was one of those, you know, wow, this really happens? Like you just get a call out of the blue so and who, get an offer to work? who called you from, from uh, Team Coco? Yeah, the executive producer, this guy named John Wooden at the time, he was just like, hey, want to pitch us some stuff? So I, I right away kind of like conjured up all these ideas to like remix the show of Conan. But then I was also kind of like, you know, the stuff that's in his monologue of like the popular culture. Right, meme at the beginning of the show. Was in, kind of yeah, it was in my zone. So I started kind of just doing that stuff on the side thinking, hey, this, maybe this will be good for the website. Yeah. But um, I, so I made this, uh, let me see. This like is, they're not gonna put this on television. I, I strictly this thought this was crude. just the website, but. It's not a journey. Every journey ends, but we go on. So Brad Pitt did a Chanel ad. Okay. And uh, it was pretty 
hoity-toity, you know, like ridiculous. So I green screen my body very crudely. And again, I'm doing this. I'm doing this with a crappy video camera next to me on a green piece of paper in my studio. Yeah. And I, I just sent it in, and John showed it to Conan. Like literally, took it to his desk and was like, "Yo, check this out, what right. Nick made." And Conan's like, "I'm gonna put it on the show tonight." So I got a call, being like, "This is gonna be on the monologue tonight." <laughs> and so that started. Then I realized I kind of had this back door onto the show. I could just send stuff to John. He'd bring it into Conan. If Conan liked it, he made it on the show. So I. Took that. And you hadn't met Conan. No, I was living. I was working in Toronto. I was just sending it over the internet, and I basically started pump trying to pump out like three, four videos a week. Whatever. I was just watching TV, watching the Oscars, watching anything that was like the Super Bowl. That he would want to work into his bits. Yeah, exactly. And and I'd even write what the bit was. You know, by the end of it, I was like sending full like here, here's the setup. Here's a joke, man. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I ended up getting like 120, 150 things into the monologue in, wow. uh, in a couple of years. So it was pretty awesome. But it was also a bit of, I think I kind of rubbed kind of the writing team the wrong way a little bit because- So you were like, hey, we're, this is our job. Well, you've got a writer's room with like, you know, 15, 17 writers all trying to pitch their ideas to the head writer in a boardroom environment. And if you're, you have to first get your idea through this gauntlet, and yeah. then you have to go shoot it with uh, their shooting team, edit it with their editing team, all this stuff. And meanwhile, I would just make that by myself on my computer and have it to them before rehearsal even started. Yeah. So they're just like, we could all work hard or just use Nick's video. So it became a kind of like, so it, what it point revealed did that that was a bad production pipeline for something that you need to create right. content on the fly in a day. Or an old world production. Yeah. It's, it's the way they were doing it was, was how everyone's been doing television for a long time. Yeah. Uh, at what point did you get to the set? Uh, probably, uh, I think within the first year I went down there. I started doing little like week-long visits and I'd hang nice. out there. And, and so people work. were cool, like once you got yeah, to Yeah, oh yeah, it was all cool. I wouldn't say like I had a bad time with the writers, but eventually they made me I had to pitch my ideas to the head writer, and I wasn't right just allowed to have that backdoor They're pipeline. Like, We're going to put you back on a moose to Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> but it kind of it did stifle. Like all of a sudden, I was getting a fraction of what I was once getting on the show. So I had because I had to go through the gauntlet. So, but that just made me work harder. I yeah. made even more videos. I was just like, I'm going to send even more now and just inundate them. I love content. it. And then how did that end? Was that ending? Did that end when the show ended? A little bit before, actually. It was kind of, there was this whole kind of stupid, like, meltdown of, I think one of, there was a, an ex-writer of the show who was like me. He was making videos for the show. He wanted to be a writer. Yeah. I forget his name even, but he, he um, became a writer on the show and didn't get any of his pieces on and then he got fired and then he started this lawsuit and then all of a sudden it was like, Whoa. boom, hammer down. No one, no one who's not a writer is allowed to do anything creative for the show. So the oh, entire man. like team at Team Coco, like none of us were allowed, and there were tons of people who would Which write stuff. Which probably a network thing, right? Network thing, it was a, a union thing. Like, you know, for me to be able to direct a piece, shoot a piece, write a piece, and and twenty five unionized people didn't get any money and send it yeah. in and do it. I would have had to been in six unions or something. You right. know what I mean? So it was just kind of like that pipeline wasn't set up for guys like us to do this. So at the time, it was they. I was like, did I? I was asked if I wanted to join this lawsuit, and I'm like, I'm not biting the hand that feeds me. This is. I have a great setup here. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of this. And yeah. then it just. It was a year long thing where everyone had to sit on their hands or something. So I just ended up. I, but I was able to keep making like remixes for the show. Like every year I did this. 
kind of thing. And I took like 120 hours or whatever the footage was of the year. Yeah. And I would make a, a remix of the whole season of Conan. Oh, wait, I think that's just a still. But yeah, and I had these regular re recurring bits too of like Alex Trebek from Jeopardy, the late Alex Trebek. He, uh, <clears throat> I would record tons of Jeopardy episodes. So I, and then I, in a premiere project, I would um, have categories like anytime Alex said an animal, or anytime he said a proper name or a noun, subject, predicate, I was like chopping it all up into these little sections so I could make him say anything. I'm starting to think Alex Trebek has been hosting that show too long. I'm afraid he's getting up there and he's starting to lose it. Take a look. On him on a pier for six, please. Puff Daddy, Puffy, P. Diddy, Shitty, whatever. <laughs> he was born with a lumpy body covered with warts. But his peanut butter, peanut butter. Uh, celebrities, 600. Oh my. Miley Cyrus blew 240,000 marsupials by using a vacuum pump in a trailer park perhaps contributing to her violent hatred of muskrats and mankind. Barrett? What is Scientology? Yes, that's it. So career-wise, right? You're, you're with Team Coco, you're doing, sending this stuff, and you're busy with the show. Yeah. Uh, and then it ends. And then what happened? Well, uh, it's funny because I had the opportunity through Conan's production company to pitch a TV show through Warner Bro to Warner Brothers. So um, my pal Davey and I, who did the like DC Shoes remix and stuff, we're both remix artists. He, yeah. he was like, did this thing called the TV Sheriff where he was like remixing commercials uh, live on stage with a keytar that would like trigger MIDI, MIDI uh, video behind him. So yeah. he's playing video and like he had this whole band and he would open for Devo and Beck and stuff. So he's wow. like a big remix hero of mine. So uh, we teamed up and pitched uh, Warner Brothers this thing that was like, um, we take their old films because they got a million yeah, know, the properties in their Full. archives, like yeah. really kind of classic films that could be turned into something else with some visual effects. So the idea was we take a, an old classic film shrink it down to 30 minutes, turn a horror into a comedy or a comedy into a horror, you know, change cool. the genre of it with like replacing people's mouths, re-editing it to change the context and check new characters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was just this, you know, proof of concept that we made with uh, The Shining from uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Sure. So, and that was the pitch to the That was a pitch to them studio. that we, we pitched them this thing called The Chickening. All this stuff is added in. We turn the Overlook Hotel into this thing called Charbay's Chicken World, a big uh, chicken-themed resort, and added chickens and new mouths, new characters to the whole thing. So we've kind of, yeah, here's the resort, all chickened out. And uh, the thing is that there's like uh, this kind of creepy <laughs> vibe of the place where they have this secret barbecue sauce they're trying to get, but it eventually turns Jack Nicholson into a chicken monster but <laughs> oh my god that's so freaky 
But yeah, it was a kind of a fun project. And again, this is like a proof of concept. It's all kind of eye candy nonsense to show right. what we could do with the tech and with, with the concept. And how long did this take to produce? It's kind of hard to say. I think it was a few months. Like uh, my pal Davey and I kind of divided and conquered, took little scenes and started adding them together. We, we ended up with like 10 or 15 minutes of content, but it didn't really make sense until it was a full half hour. So we I cut it into a trailer that was like five minutes. Yeah. But the Kubrick estate didn't really want us ruining their film. Of so course. it never really <laughs> went course. anywhere. But we also, like I've been taking this concept around for years. Like we, we I had a potential deal with Adult Swim using and Warner Brothers using the Dukes of Hazard because that was a toxic uh, entity because of the Confederate flag on it. Ah. So I said, why don't we Invert that, turn this yeah. on its head, put the rainbow flag on it, and make a lesbian comedy we called sure. it Dykes of Biohazard, where they're fighting their environmental fighting environmental uh, you know causes with this uh, you know uh, lesbian duo in a rainbow car, and we can totally take this and make the. Confederate flag thing, flip it on its head and, and use the property and do something cool. And we had the deal, but then the money they wanted for the IP was like double the production cost of making yeah, the Yeah, they were looking thing. at it as a sales opportunity, yeah. not as... It was crazy, but a, we... A development opportunity. Almost, you know, there. but it, I've ran into that over and over again because how do you pay out all these actors that were in it in the first place? Like you almost have to wait for stuff to become public domain to be able to... Granted, I mean, like, so do you see a potential um, business model in actually creating from other IP, like, commercializable content? Like, sure. I'm, I mean, I've kind of still made a career out of it regardless. Right. Like, so even though this didn't work out, it got shown in film festivals, and the people at Wyden and Kennedy saw it in Portland, probably at a film festival, and they hired me to start working on KFC stuff because they saw the chickening. Mm, so. so it was this weird link from chicken to chicken. Yeah. So they had all these existing Old Spice ads and we're like, how do we how do we <laughs> get this like, guy to turn we it We have a great client for you. <laughs> I don't know how that worked in the backroom boardroom <laughs> pitch for them, but but they gave me these Old Spice ads. So I added hats and multiplied the birds and made uh, deodorant come out of this whale's blowhole. This is from like three different spots and they're all mixed together and cut up and made insane. So I found applications for the same techniques in advertising and films and all kinds of other things, even if I couldn't acquire the IP myself and, and do it. But I looked into buying old B-movies from the 80s and where we could kind of take these funny looking characters with their shirts tucked in and their, you know, big muscle guys. And, you know, I thought that would be kind of interesting, but. Well, I mean, looking at the, the aesthetic of how you're manipulating this visual data and characters and bringing it together, <laughs> I mean, it's a different mindset, but if you pre-planned it to shoot original content to then remix, Sure, it's right. all about uh, like having it together, like ha like having an '80s movie that was a flop, right? But that was filmed beautifully, that had a great DOP or something, you know? Like like we were looking for films like that, like like movies like Samurai Cop that are like a joke now, but like something you can maybe acquire for not that much money and then and then alter them, and you've got this awesome canvas to play with, you yeah. know? Like it really is just like the the base layer is the canvas, and the story is like you know manipulated from adding all these different elements, so. And then, okay, so then this is brilliant work. I mean, I <laughs> could watch this all day. Uh, 
And so then you started working in the agency world with W and K. Yeah, and that, that turned into uh, uh, yeah, Widener Kennedy, W K, whatever. But they, uh, yeah, I did time like probably ended up doing about seven or eight big jobs for KFC and Old Spice and all these different like ridiculous, uh, you know, because because Widener Kennedy kind of got carte blanche with those two uh, brands in particular. Like Old right. Spice, it was just kind of like no notes from the client. It was all just the agency was allowed to kind of go hog wild with it, wow. and they were. A pretty awesome uh, team over there that took some crazy risks, you know, like, so it was really fun working with them where, you know, people get the sense of humor and let you, yeah, you know, run with make it, make funny stuff. So I ended up doing like a meditation system for chicken pot pies for KFC. It's a thing in the States. They don't have them here, okay, the pot yeah. pies, but I guess octogenarians in the U.S. buy these chicken pot pies from KFC. So <laughs> they wanted to, to bring that to a younger market. So we made a, like this psychedelic late night TV meditation system for chicken pot pies. It's amazing. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And we made this guy, uh, we made Colonel Sanders into a virtual influencer. This dude here, we actually won a Webby Award for best use of social media in 2020, I think, or 2021. So we, yeah, I, uh, this is all CG, created this guy from scratch. So that's not a real human. Not a real human, no. So we, you know, started with a base mesh, and I worked with this guy uh, Dan Rorty uh, in Vancouver, Rorty Digital. He does like Marvel characters and all kinds of wow. crazy high realism yeah. stuff. So yeah, we created this guy, and they gave us kind of a an ask of what they wanted him to look like, like this certain age, a certain hairstyle, very specific little references that we sure. had to yeah. kind of mangle. It's like together. back to Brad Pitt there. Yeah, this was KFC uh, boardroom. So we, we comped him into all these. <laughs> little situations so basically we took over kfc's instagram and every day was a different post for different like a month. sighting of the colonel yeah yeah <laughs> we made a record with these guys hanging out with uh, uh all kinds of people in japan fascinating <laughs> he went on his private jet we did a crossover post with dr pepper <laughs> but yeah it was ridiculous yeah he met tom green that's amazing <laughs> Yeah, it was a fun project. Oh, and we did a shoot a body double because the body to do all the outfits in CG in real time every day was a bit crazy. So that's amazing, man. So what's like, what are you working on now? Right now? Well, I kind of took January, February off to do a uh, short film and I got sort of somewhat far a couple minutes of it which is a lot in heavy animation world but yeah. I shot a lot of it's it's basically real life plates with CG characters in it so I'm shooting em just empty subway cars and right. like things like that and then adding my mocap characters in yeah and the concept is kind of just people being assholes like it's just each person does something mean to the next and then they get what's coming to them. So it's uh, like this karma chain. So sure. everybody does a mean thing to the next person and they get what's coming to them and it ends going back to this first person. Okay. So, it's this, so it's modular, so I can make it as long as I want. I can end it Brilliant. just by taking one character and bringing it at the end. So I don't know, how, it's gonna take me forever. Like it's, because uh, I'm doing all these Houdini simulations with like fat jiggling and cloth sims and hair. And it's, so it's like every little step is taking a day. So it's yeah. like, it's taking forever. So now I kind of like, put it on ice for a minute because I'm doing some uh, uh, music video stuff with uh, Oliver Tree, the artist. I think I was showing you him mentioned earlier. him, right. And he's kind of in the same vibe as me as far as comedy and weird videos goes. So it was a kind of an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I took a little break from my film to do this for a month. So it's, it's fascinating because it seems like, you know, and again, there's uh, probably a lot of our audience would probably enjoy this, is that like there are few examples people come across 
in uh, creative pursuits where characters like you emerge, you know, like people were like, I'm gonna do this cool thing. And it's like, I'm really interested in it. And it just like, you know, put it out there and then it connects with someone who can commercialize it and you get gigs and you, it kind of like carries itself, yeah. you know, especially in this like noisy media landscape of today. But, but again, it's not like, like I said before, I'm not, uh, I didn't set out to do this. It was no. always just, I was doing it for fun and throwing it on the internet to make my buddies laugh. Right. And that turned into this thing where people started hiring me to do it. And still like my Instagram is just stuff I do for myself for fun. And that for whatever reason, people like I've been able to align with other brands that, that dig it. Right. So, I mean, like another one. Oh, yeah, I brought some other clips too, like the music videos I did with Dead Mouse. So I've done a, quite a few okay. with him. Dead Mouse uh, Joel is a good buddy of mine now because I've done so many projects and tour visuals and music videos and all kinds of stuff with him. But this is a music video I made during the pandemic as well. And it was just kind of reimagined his mouse head as all these other animals and characters. I love in, it. In a big car race. So this was a, a track he did with the Neptunes. And uh, yeah, so this was an insane turnaround. I had 50 something, 56 days to do the whole thing from scratch. So Whoa. it was like building assets, like. And this is just you. Uh, I actually had friends work for the first week or two. So um, my pal David Ariev roughed out some environments for me, and uh, Davy uh, helped with the car interior and a few other car assets. But the rest I like animated, created, rendered. This was your everything. life for two months. Yeah, like we're talking upwards of like 18 hour, 20 hour days, like almost like, every day. <laughs> do you ever have like nightmares of your work? Does no, it haunt you? not really, no. I mean, this, it's kind of, there's so much of it now. I, I look back at some stuff and I forget even like what it was I, like to did, make it. Yeah. Right. Did this, I even do this? This was one of those projects where I look back and I'm like, how did I even make this in 50 something days? But it was just front loading, building assets. I'm like making spaceships, making cars, making all this stuff for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm -hmm. And then, or like, I guess two weeks, three weeks. And then it was like, I'm like, I have to start rendering stuff. And then I was like, I made a rough timeline, not a storyboard, but just things I wanted to happen throughout it. And yeah. then just in real time, building a new shot, rendering it out, building the next shot, rendering it out until it was done on the last day. It was kind of a crazy. And what was the reception of this? It looks like exceptional work. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was great. We, we got nominated for Juno. We didn't win, but we got nominated for Juno that year for music video of the year. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, turned out beautiful. All the, you know, different environments were cool and each one trans transitions into the next, so. But yeah, this is kind of like, and and he, uh, Joel Deadmau5 gives me pretty much carte blanche on the Did concepts. Did you work a chicken into that person who was just doing the running man? man? Always. <laughs> My dad's a butcher of a poultry butcher shop. I put chickens in everything. I love it. Uh, but yeah, it's just this, you know, super fun, fluid concept and uh, turned out one of those things that worked out. And luckily there were no notes at the end. He's like, all right, wicked, chip it out. And I'm like, thank God, because yeah. I have two days left. So yeah, he's become a good uh, collaborator. And that's what it's all about, I think, you know, like in the, in the kind of like creative pursuits is, is about collaborations. Yeah, so how, I'm not, how do you find... Huh. I'm not being a stickler. Like I've worked with some people too. It's just you're just changing things for the sake of changing them over right. and over again. Right. And I think Joel also gets that, you know, like... 
every like you're he's also an artist and people who you know if i think a good artist who collaborates with other people kind of knows when you're doing it for ego reasons like like changing things for the sake of changing it like in commercial world in advertising world there's a lot of people who don't need to be there sometimes you've mm -hmm. got teams of 12 people and three people could easily do it like look at your crew here we're here with three of us right, right. now but you know, when you get to these points where there's people that need to speak up and have some kind of input for the sake of justifying their position, exactly. and it just kills productivity when it's just like... And it robs the creative flow, right? Yeah, and if, everyone, if everyone's good at what they do and they all trust each other, you can have a really efficient workflow, you know, and get totally. amazing things done in a short period of time with very few people. It's funny because we were talking before when we jumped on, before we jumped on camera about this whole, like, the, the shifts in agency world life, right? And that convention of, like, bloated teams lots of levels of hierarchy and management, client also mirroring that on their side, and then output being in the traditional world, you know, you could spend a million bucks on some sort of like asset that took like a month to turn around. Yeah. These days, maybe less so, unless it's like going in front of the Super Bowl. But now the technology, like even your yeah. setup with these cameras, it now allows you to do something wirelessly that you would have needed like a way more money worth of gear to do back in the day. Yeah. and. Not too long ago, like same with software. We're like, talking like pre-pandemic. This yeah. technology didn't exist. Sure. Pre two thousand twenty. Even like my mocap suit, you know, only like three or four years ago it came out where it was affordable. It was like it's like twenty five hundred US or something for this Rococo suit that I use, and it's like has gloves and it's wow. like it captures everything. Wow. And yeah, just like ten years ago, five years ago, like six figures or something hundreds crazy. of thousands. Yes. Yeah. Insane. And now wow. that we're on the verge of that becoming obsolete, where you can just use AI and pull it out of a video clip right. of you doing this AI stuff. Like I spoke to someone at uh, Electronic Arts, I think, and they've basically shot every single sports athlete in every single you know, yeah, for position. For their video games? Yeah, with a mocap suit and with video side by side. So you have those two data sets. Yeah. So you can rever basically reverse engineer video now to do. Like I've been looking at LiDAR. LiDAR is a crazy technology. Yeah. It should be on every camera. Like the fact yeah. that we're still match moving with software when you can just have a little device on your camera that captures its position. Yeah. You know, that's a that's another art form that's gonna be obsolete. Like like match moving hopefully will not be necessary and I, I labor over it all the time. Yeah, it is interesting. And it is exciting. I mean, like it's daunting that like the responsibility could fall on the shoulders of whoever's creating something to do even more epic work constantly. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of stress right now in the industry and across a lot of industries being like, I just spent 10 years learning Cinema 40 and now Houdini oh. and all these things. And you're telling me now that like anyone's going to be able to do this without putting those 10 years in? It's like it's like upsetting people. But is that <laughs> is it primarily becoming upsetting because people are feeling that they're made redundant or that they have to keep up with what's like they're afraid of, of. I think people fundamentally at least in North America with this kind of stuff, are always afraid of becoming jobless. Yeah, sure. Or losing gigs. Yeah. And at the same time, so we've got this kind of like the creative not sure of how to stay relevant, but perhaps because they're getting gigs from agencies that are changing in nature and relevancy. Mm. You know, and, and fundamentally, more relationships are being formed, like we were talking about earlier, with, between brands and creators and audiences. Yeah. Uh, you know, as creators are even forming internal agencies at uh, mm -hmm. at brands, so it's it's pretty fluid. But the big thing is like where the ideas are coming from now. Uh, you know, the gatekeepers of that are kind of is where the sort of like 
you know, dissolving is happening because it used to be, and for this reason, I kind of think I'm not too concerned about AI because like I was getting decks for advertising jobs mm -hmm. all the time that was like decks full of my own work or Google image searches. Like people were just looking at Google image searches, putting them in a deck, being like, make this, but make it a little bit more like this and this. And yeah. you're just copying and scraping data from Google anyway. So that this is just a better version of that, these the mid journeys and the the dallies and stuff like that. So it's kind of like agreed. If we're just doing that, if that, if your creative process is just copying what you find on the internet anyway, then why not just use these? Plus, the way I look at it is a lot of the industry that is going to be cannibalized by this like rapid, let's call it rapid visual prototyping tools, mm -hmm. is kind of crappy stuff anyway. Sure. If you're talking about like CPG, let me show free to lay package in 50 different spins, yeah, yeah. you know. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. That's not what's going to sell the chips, yeah. man. You know? Yeah. Um, I think so, a big new idea with AI is still going to take a lot of work. Like I said, it's still going to get you 75, 80% of the way there. You still need to cross finish line. And you still need to have a good idea that implements two or three of these different models together. Like I still think it's, it's like my computers. Every time I get a new computer, I'm like, oh, and render time is going to be nothing now. And then... I end up just doing more because I have more yeah. capability. So then the render time is always slow, forever. That's like us. We keep adding cameras, man. It's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I need it's, five more angles on yeah, this. Yeah, thing. it's always gonna. You're gonna find a way to make it more difficult if oh, you yeah. have more power. It's true. <laughs> tools are just tools, fundamentally. And yeah, there will be this whole thing of like kind of, you know, the rob robot writing the script and then producing it automatically in one swoop. But that's not going to be compelling. No. Amazing I stuff. I saw someone made a film already on YouTube. I saw, and it was like, oh, yeah, we got ChatGPT to write the script and give suggestions on the, uh, like, storyboard cropping and all, you know? And it was and just like, crap. I was just I like, this love sucks. me, you, yeah. you. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, with a film especially, it's like so many things can be the Achilles heel. Like, a bad right. acting, a bad DOP, a bad writing, everything. Like, all the things need to be great well, for it to be and look know. at the film industry right there's the kind of entertainment industry the big magic there's a few companies that were supposed to to have like the quants and the math and data science behind uh how they would hack uh blockbusters okay right historically there's been a few studio movements and a few kind of unscrupulous chaps in in hollywood that sold the story of well we've got this data science team that comes from whatever it is hedge funds that comes from these people those people and we're going to analyze kind of viewer uh, interests and based on blockbuster data from before sure. internet times yeah <laughs> and uh, and they've sold the story to the studio studios have invested in various kind of ventures like this and they've all failed and then the biggest one of course the pause it anyway until they spent billions or poured billions down the, the the tubes is Netflix and you look at the data set Netflix has, but yet you look at the recommendation engine and you look at how the like AI is supposed to be making it easier for customers to engage with content mm -hmm. and be presented with things that they like. And you realize that like the auto tagging is just totally off yeah, or doesn't exist. There's really not much analysis. But also what's the, the end game if we're just being fed what we like like if, if in music yes. music has the data now of what is the most played what certain people like to listen to and it's down crap. to the chord progression and the bpm and everything and if they're like okay that's what we need to make now and they make more of that it's not guaranteed as people are going to like all it fast food and what and what does it mean if they do feed us that and pump that in onto the radio waves are we just going to like 
more of that? Is it gonna like even narrow more like the the garbage of ultimate pop music? Like, is it is it a good I, thing? <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing. I also don't believe that this is like a kind of decades long sustainable track in commerce. You yeah. know, because this is the back end of the business too. If you look at the macro and you look at the public markets supporting being able to subsidize the mass adoption of crap quality anything. Yeah. Um, but also, it's not that anyone has to make that music that is calculated to be the ultimate song that you're going to like. It, right. It'll be generated. That could be the robots. Yeah. So it's like, at that point, what's your, the product your KFC guy could be the next Drake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they already are. Virtual. Watch out, Drake. KFC's coming yeah, for you, man. Yeah, there already are virtual influencers that are crazy popular. You know, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So lots ahead down the road, but I like I like your perspective, which is that no matter what, you can still be relevant as a creator, sure, and still be challenged to create awesome stuff because there's new tools and there's evolution in the tools. Yeah, and I think you just have to use them as that a tool and not think that it's going to come replace you. Like it's it's if it's going to replace you, it means they're easy to use and you can use them too. You know, for young creators, new creators, people doing stuff that were like you 20, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, let's yeah. say. Um, do you have any uh, any recommendations, any particular insights to offer them? My like like I said before, my I can trace every single job I ever got, every single opportunity I ever got. The Conan opportunity came back to a, a, a video I remixed of the ladies at the View, the TV show. I made them all just my usual tracking stupid hats on them and funny stuff and. I did some political satire videos for fun on YouTube and people at Conan saw that and hired me. I did the chickening for fun as a pitch piece and KFC hired me. You know, like everything, every job I've ever had goes back to a piece I did for fun for mm -hmm. me to learn something new. So my advice to people starting out or whatever else is like, yeah, have fun and, and create projects because you want to learn something, not because you have an audience that you're trying to appease or anything like that. It has to come from a genuine place for people to, you know, want to hire you, I think. Or if, uh... I like it. Opportunity is attracted when people apply themselves in a way that feels free. Yeah. Because then also their work speaks for itself. My website is called Smearballs. And it's, <laughs> if I went to the bank and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start this business with this name. <laughs> And I'm gonna make content that's relatively off-putting and weird. Right. And I'm gonna, yeah, we're gonna, you know, it's gonna make lots of money. We're gonna do great. Would you invest in my project? Like nobody is going to agree to that. And for some reason, I've been successful. But on paper, it is a terrible idea. An yeah. awful, awful. No one do what I did. No one should do it the way I did it because it doesn't make sense. But. I made this artwork for fun and it resonated and it worked out. So I can't really give anybody advice on the technical business side of how it happened. Right. But conceptually, I think that's a smart move to keep doing what works for you and what, what gain. And, and it's obviously, I react to the audience's reaction when people like it, when people follow me because I made something. It's obviously doing something, so yeah. having an effect. So nice. Go with your gut. <laughs> it was a pleasure spending some time, man. Yeah, yeah, great being here, man. This is a cool setup. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Awesome. <laughs> Cut! <laughs> no, that was really good. Yeah, that was